Acts chapter 4. We're in the middle of Acts chapter 4 as we keep going through this great little book. Acts 4. Long before The Voice or America's Got Talent, the original Amateur Hour aired in one form or another from 1934 to 1970. It was rebooted for one year in 1992. It started on radio and then moved to television. On each episode, contestants would come out and perform, and then the audience was asked to vote for their favorites by postcard or telephone. (laughs) Winners would then be invited back to perform again, and if you won three times, you were eligible to compete in the championship round for $2,000. Sorry, a $2,000 scholarship. I don't know to what school, but... uh, so you had to do a lot, of, a lot of winning to maybe get a discount at a school you didn't want to go to. But. It's no longer a well-known program, but the original Amateur Hour did give us some significant contributions as far as pop culture goes. It is where the phrase, round and round she goes and where she stops, nobody knows, came from. Uh, they would say that each time because contestants, the order of contestants was determined by spinning a wheel. Gladys Knight performed on the program at seven years of age. You, you can't see it, but you can hear her performance if you go on YouTube. Gladys Knight, original amateur hour. Great singing at seven years of age. Pat Boone appeared and won several weeks uh, on the show. Other amateurs who rose to stardom after appearing on the show include Anne Margaret, Jose Feliciano, Tanya Tucker, Frank Sinatra, who's singing with a quartet, and Louis Farrakhan, who who appeared in 1949 playing a classical piece on his violin. You can see that, the video of it. He plays pretty good. When we left off in our text last time, Peter and John had been brought before the Sanhedrin. It's the Supreme Court of Israel. And they were put on trial for healing a crippled man and then preaching about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Before these judges, Peter gave a powerful performance in the form of a sermon. It was only the first of their appearances on this particular stage. They'll have another. But it was a defining moment as opposition to the church would now begin in earnest as the gospel simultaneously spread throughout the city of Jerusalem. As these powerful judges watched and considered Peter and John, they come to the conclusion that these guys are amateurs. That's the word that they use in the, uh, in the Greek. They're nowhere near as decorated or sophisticated or professional or academic as the Sanhedrin, and yet these rank amateurs spoke with a power and effectiveness that caused the judges that day to marvel. Now, we left off at verse 12, Peter had just identified Jesus as the cornerstone that Israel had rejected, and he declared that salvation could not be found anywhere but in Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the story at the end of his sermon there in verse 13. It says, when they, the Sanhedrin, observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were fishermen. They had no official training. They had no formal education. They had no expertise as far as the Sanhedrin were concerned. They were amateurs in their minds, and they meant it in a pejorative way. Uh, As far as the Sanhedrin were were concerned, guys like this had no business speaking to them in such a way. And yet, these common men, like their master before them, spoke with real authority. 
that caused everyone in the room to sit quietly and listen and to be struck with the power of their truth. Now, we aren't against formal education in theology or ministry, depending on the school you go to, of course. Sometimes people come and they say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, doing Bible studies or, you know, ministry studies at the following school. I say, yeah, I don't want to go there. Uh, And if you ever are wondering about a particular Bible program and or, or something like that, you can talk to us about it and we'll let you know what we've heard, uh, what our experience has been. But the scene here proves that just having a piece of paper does not give you spiritual authority. Remember what the people said about Jesus when he was teaching in the Gospels. They were astounded, the word says, because he taught with authority, not like the scribes who had no authority. Even though the scribes were the educated experts They spent their whole lives dedicated to the academic study of the scriptures. They were the gatekeepers to theology as far as the culture was concerned. But their degrees didn't make them spiritual or right or even worth listening to. In fact, in dramatic, uh, amazing ways, they completely missed the point of the scriptures. They completely missed the teaching of the scriptures. They completely missed the prophecy of the scriptures. And so having a piece of paper, a degree, or some certification doesn't by itself make a person uh, adequate in theology or in ministry or give them authority from heaven. On the flip side, though, the Sanhedrin weren't impressed that day because Peter and John had a really great hype team that got them ready or because they had a really effective brand when they were there to pitch their new sect to the Sanhedrin or that Peter and John had swagger for days. Those are things that grab attention today, right? On social media, you're on Instagram, you're scrolling, 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 and you, and you, you see some of these things and you think, really? Really? And, and, and on the one end, you have a rigid formalism that says, well, these people can't even teach the Bible because they didn't go to the right school or they didn't go to enough school or they need the, you know, the following education or the, this amount of official certification, those sorts of things. But on the flip side, you have... Uh, you know, groups or individuals who think that ministry is just all about swagger, it's all about brand, it's all about the way you look and the way you present yourself. And that's how you grab people's attention. But that's not what got the attention of the Sanhedrin that day. The source of the apostles' effectiveness that morning is given right there in the text. It says that they had been with Jesus. They walked with him. And so their lives were transformed in such a way that people couldn't help but wonder and listen to them. They spoke with uh, real gravity to their words. It wasn't just theoretical, it was real. It was something that had actually happened to them, something they could actually testify to. And we've talked about this before in some of Peter's other sermons, that he was an actual eyewitness to this work of God in his life and around him, and so he spoke with authority. Verse 14 says, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. Now, they wanted to say something in response. That's the whole point of their gathering together that day. Their default mental position was anti-Jesus. And they've made that abundantly clear as we've gone through these verses. The Sanhedrin wanted to contradict what had happened, and they wanted to find a way they could sweep it under the rug or they could execute Peter and John or get rid of them, but they simply couldn't. And there was the man right there, made new, right in front of them. They all recognized him. They all knew him. He's jumping and leaping and praising God, doing something he had never done for 40 years of his life. 
And the man, he doesn't, we don't have his name, but he stands there once again as an example to us. This time, the healed man reminds us of the importance of actually walking the talk. You know, if we're going to represent a God of love and a God of grace and a God of transformation to a lost and dying world whose default position is anti-God and anti-Jesus, well, then our lives have to actually be renewed by those things that we're preaching so that the anti-Jesus world has nothing to refute. And the New Testament tells us this. They say, you need to live in such a way that people don't have things that they can say, yeah, but you're a hypocrite about this. Yeah, but this isn't really true in your life. You're talking about a God of love, but you don't show love to people. You're talking about a God of forgiveness, but you don't forgive. You're talking about a, love, a God of mercy, but you show no mercy. And so we want to be in, in a devotional sense like this man who is actually changed by the power of God. And so that when they come and say, hey, God is a God of resurrection, he's a God of power, he's a God who transforms lives, he's a God who can invade your circumstances right now and accomplish his good purposes. Does he do any of that in my life? Ah, no, he doesn't do any of that. But maybe he'll do it in your life. We want to we stand as real living examples of the power of God, of the truth of God. The fact that God gives peace, the fact that God gives joy, the fact that God gives us long-suffering and a new mind and a new heart and all these things that we preach about and all these things that we believe and all the things that the Word has revealed, they need to be true in our lives. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. No one's suggesting that we have to have a perfect testimony where we never make any sort of mistake. That's silly. Even in the book of Acts, we're going to see apostles make mistakes. And that, you know, that's not what we're talking about. But if we preach a God of holiness, we're to be holy. If we talk about forgiveness, we should be forgiving. If we talk about a God of generosity, we should be generous. Our lives should be a daily example of the power of God, just as this healed man's life was. Where you could look at him and say, not only are you saying something to me about Jesus Christ, you are a demonstration of the fact that it's true. Verse 15 says, After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. Wow. They couldn't deny it, but they were definitely going to ignore it. Uh, same outcome, sort of, but very different things. They admit openly to each other, yeah, we know this really happened. It's not fake. It's not a parlor trick. It's not a system of mirrors. I was watching, remember when David Copperfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear? I was like, I was going on, I was reading about, okay, so how did he do that? I won't spoil it for you if any of you are magic people, but, you know, it wasn't like that. They said, hey, it's obvious, this really happened. He's really healed. No one can deny it, and everybody knows it. But we're going to choose to ignore it. We're going to reject it. What a sad statement they've made here. Uh, back in the 2016 election, I remember seeing those never Trump bumper stickers, right? And then in the next car, you'd see the never Hillary bumper stickers, never everybody. Everybody's all mad all the time. These guys were never Jesus. That's the stickers that they had on the back of their robe. Just never Jesus. And whatever it is, whatever you're talking about, whatever's going on, if you're trying to connect it to Jesus Christ, we don't want to have any of it. Doesn't matter how real it is, doesn't matter how wonderful it is, doesn't matter how true it is, any of that, never Jesus. No matter what they saw, no matter what they heard, they would not accept him as the Messiah. 
They'd cover up his resurrection. They'd bribe people. They'd sweep things under the rug. They'd make threats. They'd break the law. They'd do all this stuff. Just never Jesus. We cannot deny it, but we will ignore it. You know, we can pause for a moment here for a small devotional thought. We know that God still speaks. And he still speaks to us, not just generically that God speaks, which he does. You know, creation declares the works of God. And, you know, God speaks in general through his word. But to you and I personally, we know that God speaks through the scriptures and by his Holy Spirit, that things are going on in our lives and that God in heaven is mindful of them and that he has something to say about them to us and that he speaks to us about our lives and about our situations and about things that are coming, you know, across our path and all that sort of thing. We want to be careful not to ignore God when he speaks, especially when he speaks something that we're not particularly interested in. When we make a plan in our own lives and God comes along and speaks to us through his word or through other Christians who love us and who are speaking the truth or through the Holy Spirit in some way and says, hey, don't do that thing that you're planning to do. When something like that happens, we want to be really careful to not ignore God when he's speaking. Well, God, I can't deny that you speak. I can't deny that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I can't deny that you've given me all that I need for life and godliness. I can't deny that you've surrounded me with a network of Christians who are like a family to me, who want to speak to me and by the Holy Spirit minister to me. I can't deny those things, but I'll ignore it if I don't like the message. And we want to be careful not to let that sort of Sadducee mentality creep in. Because sometimes God is going to show up and say, hey, that plan that you made, Gene, we're not doing that. Or rather, he's going to say, I don't want you to do that. And now you have the choice whether you're going to go your way or my way. And the Bible throughout both Testaments is full of examples, right? Where God comes and he says something to an individual whether it's somebody like Abraham or somebody like Jonah, and he says, hey, I have something I would like you to do or something I would like you not to do. And then that individual has to make a choice. Oh, I'm going to go my way. And it never goes well. They ignore the message of God, and it leads to disaster for them. And so we want to be careful. We don't want to be people who ignore God when he speaks. That's what the Sanhedrin were doing here. If God's word is speaking to you in your own reading, or if God is speaking to you through some sermon or some Bible study, take care not to ignore it. Instead, listen and respond. Remember that God loves you, and he is the God of all wisdom, and he wants what's best for you, and he knows what's best for you. And so let's not ignore the Lord when he speaks, particularly when he speaks things that are in contradiction to what we think we want. Verse 17 says, however, so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. After everything they had seen, this was the plan. Uh, would it have been wonderful if they would have said, wow, I have an idea. Let's get some crippled people in here and see if we can do this again. Right? I mean, we know that the temple was jam-packed full of sick, infirm, crippled people. Remember when Jesus was talking to the guy at the, the pool of Bethesda there? He says, hey, what are you doing? He says, well, I want to get down there, the stirring of the water, hoping I'll be healed. But there's so many people and they get down there in front of me. And so we know the temple complex and around it is just jam-packed full of mangled people, crippled people, sick people, people who desperately need help, people who are without hope. 
And now you have two guys who said, hey, we just healed somebody. It wasn't us. It was the power of God who works through his people. And you would hope that the religious leaders of the nation would say, can we get a cue going here? Can we get a line going? Let's get some triage going. Hey, instead of threatening you and pretending like we're going to kill you and trying to destroy you, we're going to take you out there. Let's find the sickest guy and see what God might do. Remember, these weren't these were supposed to be the religious God-fearing judges of all Israel. And there's a complete disregard for what God had done and a complete just disregard for the suffering and the deliverance of this healed man. It's a really sad, sad thing. And so they, their hard hearts, they just it would not allow for any such compassion. They wanted no more of this. They wanted to be done with it. They wanted it squashed. No compassion. Our level of compassion for the lost and the suffering around us in this world is one good indicator of our spiritual health, kind of like a, a, a sort of thermometer. What's my compassion level at? Uh, our God is a God of compassion. He's a God of tender mercy. He's a God who goes the extra mile, right? He leaves the 99 to go after that one lost sheep. And we're given his heart and we're sent out into a world that desperately needs heavenly compassion. We're told in Colossians 3 to clothe ourselves with heartfelt compassion and kindness. Things like greed and selfishness, those kinds of things which were filling the hearts of the Sanhedrin, they crowd out mercy and compassion. You can't have compassion and selfish greed in the same heart. One of them is going to take care of the other one. And so if we find our own lives and our own hearts too crowded for kindness, we need the Lord to do some maintenance in us. And so it's just a good invitation for every one of us to sort of check the compassion gauge in our hearts tonight. This callous cruelty of the Sanhedrin is shocking. When you read it as it's written, you think, wow, I mean, these guys who pretend to be the professional experts about all things God, these guys who claim to be, you know, the access point between heaven and earth uh, for their nation, uh, these guys who spend their lives supposedly dedicated to the scriptures, uh, they don't care at all that this miracle has clearly been worked in their midst. They don't care at all that Jesus is clearly proven to be risen from the dead. They don't care at all that God is extending them yet another offer of mercy, even though they're the ones that conspired to kill the Messiah. Uh, they know all of these things, and they're just cruel and callous and hard-hearted about it, and it's shocking. But the same thing still happens today all the time. It reminds me of what's been happening in India for the last few years. If you didn't know it, starting in 2014, the government there has been coming against thousands of groups that they feel are engaging in what they call religious activities, and they've been expelling them out of the nation. And the result is that not only is the Indian government trying to muzzle the gospel, keep the gospel from being preached, it's also keeping countless millions of people from being helped. All of these groups that they're kicking out are groups, most, many of them are groups that are coming in, yes, with the gospel, but they're also coming in with things like food and medicine, things that the people of India desperately need. Hundreds of millions of people in India are desperately poor and in need of just the most basic covering for survival. And yet the government is saying, we don't like that you're preaching about Christianity, and so everybody get out, get out, get out, get out. And the question is, hey, what about the hundreds of millions of people 
who are not going to get a meal today because of this decision. And the government doesn't care about that. They have no concern or intention uh, to help those people. They're not worried about that suffering in their midst. Uh, Compassion International, they had worked in India for 48 years, providing meals, medical care, schooling to countless thousands of children. In fact, Compassion International repeatedly ranked as India's largest single foreign donor. Let that sink in for a minute. The, the, or, the one group that gave India the most money was Compassion International to help the children who were starving and who were diseased and who were uneducated and who didn't have what they needed to survive. And, and the government of India came along and said, we don't like that you're Christian, get out. Get out and take your money with you because after all, we don't care about the people that you're helping. We just want you out so that none of this Christianity business spreads any further. What about the 115 million kids living in poverty in India? But we see, just like the Sanhedrin, when there's a government that is hostile to Jesus Christ, it doesn't care about the cripples in their midst, the suffering in their midst. It doesn't care about the good that's going on through this ministry. They just say, hey, never Jesus, hashtag never Jesus. And it's a really terrible and sad thing. And so it's shocking for us to read it as a narrative account here in Acts 4, but the same thing is happening all over the world today. Verse 18, so they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Even these unbelieving rulers understood the name matters. Peter and John and the rest of their little club, hey, have your meetings. You can come and go from the temple if you want. Do whatever. You just stop talking about Jesus. No more saying the name of Jesus when you guys are getting together and when you're talking to people. Sadly, there have been times in corners of Christianity where people think, well, it'll be better to just sort of soft sell Christianity a little bit. You know, we don't necessarily need to be preachy. We don't want to ram Jesus down people's throats. It's sort of the mentality behind it. But the Bible tells us that we are saved by calling on the name of Jesus. We're told to pray and ask in the name of Jesus. It's his name that is above every other name. We're to minister in his name. We're washed and sanctified and justified in his name. At his name, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. The name matters. We're not to soft sell the gospel. We're not to soft sell Jesus Christ and sneak it in. I had a guy come to my door the other day. Had his shirt and his clipboard. Hey, are you the owner of the house? Yes, I am. Hey, I would like to talk to you about an exciting opportunity. Are you selling this? No, I'm not. And I knew he was. I said, you're not? Oh, it's a no-cost program. Okay. So you're not trying to do this, this, and this. Well, if I could just talk to you, I said, okay. <laughs> I, we all know what's happening here, you know. You're trying to soft sell me. You're trying to just sort of sneak it in a little bit. We can't do that with the gospel. We can't do that with our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim Him clearly and directly, naming Jesus Christ as God and King and Savior. Peter and John knew there was no church and no Christianity without the name of Jesus. And so we see the response in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They notify these judges that they will not be obeying this command from verse 18. Now, notice how they do it. It's an important lesson on uh, Christian uh, civic disobedience. 
Now notice how they do it. They're calm, they're courteous, they don't threaten them back, they aren't combative. A few moments ago, the Sanhedrin had commanded them to leave the room so that they could try to find a way to punish them, do some legal jujitsu and see if we could get these guys in trouble. And they had just put them in jail overnight for nothing, right? And so they say, hey, we're commanding you to get out of here. And Peter and John didn't resist. They didn't make a scene. They obeyed. Here, when they're forced to choose between sin or Savior, they do make it clear that, hey, we're going to go God's way. We're not going to obey what you say. We're going to obey God in this case. But they're not full of malice. They're not full of hate. They're matter of fact. But they're composed and they're peaceful. Uh, they don't change their behavior or their attitude. They don't start yelling. They don't start doing crazy things. You know, we live in a very agitated culture. Everybody's mad all the time. That's not a good thing, by the way. As Christians, we don't need to be constantly combative to the world around us. We're trying to win the world, We're trying to rescue people uh, from sin and from death. Now, look at the way Peter and John dealt with this attack that they were suffering. Think of how Daniel and his three friends there in Babylon behaved. They didn't start a riot. They don't threaten legal action. They just continue obeying the Lord. In other words, they don't fight fire with fire. They fight fire with living water, right? That's what they're doing. Our culture needs more of that. The church needs more of that. At the same time, they were not about to allow the culture to dictate what they were going to do. They weren't going to compromise in order to have stability with, you know, the Jewish ruling class here. The Sanhedrin wanted them to make some significant changes to the way they did things, changes that were in contradiction to what God had commanded them. And Peter and John said, yeah, we're not doing that. The church wasn't going to go along with that at all. Peter and John, they say, hey, look, we have to follow God. We can't follow you. We're happy to live in peace. We're happy to come to the temple day after day. But if you're coming and telling us we can't talk about Jesus, we're just not going to do that. You know, God speaks and he leads and he directs his church. He's the one that should be shaping the progress of our personal spirituality and the methods and the advances of our church, not the culture. You know, sometimes it seems like the church falls into a trap. The idea is, well, we want to be contemporary and we want to be able to engage with the people around us. But what ends up happening so often is that the church just simply allows the worldly culture to dictate how the church does things. And so what, with the trap that I think sometimes churches fall into is say, well, we want to be contemporary. Or we want to you know, be able to reach our community or whatever. So let's just stir up the recipe of the world, bring it into the church, add a dash of Jesus, and then people will be interested. And then people will come in and what a great thing that will be. And what happens is that as the church allows the culture to dictate how she does things, it just brings ruin into the church. And I can understand, you know, the, the mentality is, well, we have to do this because this is what the culture likes. Why would they come in if they, you know, if we're too weird or too different or too unlikable to the culture? But, you know, that's not how the apostles operated. They didn't want the culture around them to take the lead. They wanted God to lead and to just follow after where he was telling them to go. Ultimately, real Christianity is always going to be countercultural. maybe not in every way, but in very significant ways. I mean, think of all the, the biblical examples. There's tons of them, but think of God's people in Egypt, countercultural. Think of God's people in Babylon, God's people in Rome, God's people in all of these different places. The point is that we stick out. The point is that we're different. The point is that we're not polluted by the world system and the way the world does things. 
The believers in all of those stories, they weren't camouflaged and like snuck up on sinners and said, no, Jesus has you, right? They stood out. They're the city on the hill, right? They stuck out like light in the darkness. That's the point. When light is in darkness, it attracts a lot of attention. People want to know what it's about. And in a passage like this, we see that thousands of people were getting saved, putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It also attracted some negative attention as the world system came against the church. But as, as a church and as individual believers, we shouldn't be trying to be more cultural. Instead, we should be seeking after the Lord and His power. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? We talk about how Pastor Chuck Smith was a great example of this. No one was less hip than Pastor Chuck Smith, right? Did the hippies of the Jesus movement come to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa because Chuck Smith was hip? No, they weren't. He's because God was doing something. The Holy Spirit was moving because truth was going out and the, and the Lord was doing a work. And you had people there at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa who were willing to follow the Lord and say, sure, let's do it. Where are you going? We'll go with you. And so it's God who should be dictating what we do and how we do it as Christians and as a church, not the world. I mean, think about it. People weren't joining the Jerusalem church in these chapters because it was a hip place to be. It wasn't hip. They didn't have any money. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any programs. They didn't have any plan. They didn't have a building. They didn't have any of those things. And yet thousands and thousands of people are having their lives changed, not because of the way that people preach or a style of dress or anything like that, but because God was working and they were following. They were joining because the gospel was changing lives and because it was the one place where people could go to find real spiritual truth, not hype, not swagger, not anything like that. And so Peter and John were going to continue walking in the leading of the power of the Holy Spirit despite the opposition that was coming against them. Verse 21, after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God for over what had been done for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. And so the good guys walked away with a win that day. What could the Sanhedrin do? Well, we're going to find out in the very next chapter what they're willing to do as this scene plays itself over again. Second verse, same as the first, except the outcome's a little different. We're going to see in the next chapter, the apostles are healing people. They preach Jesus Christ. They get arrested. The Sanhedrin are confronted with an undeniable miracle. They can't find any wrongdoing on the part of the Christians, but this time they're going to have them savagely flogged before they let them go. And from there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to the murder of Stephen and then full-blown violent persecution of the church. And so they posted a W in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They're still victors, but the uh, opposition is going to get a lot more sharp. But on this day in Acts 4, the amateurs had stunned the crowd. In some sense, it reminded me of that you know, famous video of Susan Boyle doing her performance on Britain's Got Talent. I'm guessing most of you have seen that. If you aren't familiar with it, it was like a, one of those early viral videos. I think it's about 10 years old now. Susan Boyle comes out on Britain's Got Talent. They kind of mock her a little bit. She doesn't look the part. And then she sings the song from Les Miserables. Phantom of the Opera is much better. But she sings a song from Les Mis. And then everybody's like, oh, it's the best thing ever. And then she gets a record contract. Blows the judges away, Right. The difference being that there was no worry that Piers Morgan or Simon Cowell might kill her after she sang this song. It's a little bit of a difference, but that's kind of what it reminded me of. You have Peter and John, these fishermen, they spent the night in jail. 
the whole of the religious and civic and political power of Israel is gathered together. They're drawing up charges that could lead to capital punishment. What do you have to say for yourselves? And man, the apostles, they, they hadn't planned it. They didn't you know, have any sort of campaign. They weren't necessarily ready for it on a human level, but man, were they ready for it. And they just crush it. They knock it out of the park. And those, they walk off the stage that day, and these Sanhedrin are just dumbstruck. And they say, aren't these guys just amateurs? How, how are they doing this? How, how are they so authoritative? How, how are they working a miracle? That was because God was working through his people. Now, probably none of us are going to be brought before a panel of judges and made to give a defense of our faith tomorrow, though many of our brothers and sisters around the world do have to face those sorts of tests and threats. However, as Christians, we are made to go out on the world stage and proclaim and represent Jesus Christ clearly and effectively. You are a part of his visible, active body here on the earth. You and I are instruments in his hand meant to resound the life-changing message of the gospel to anyone who will listen. To succeed in this life that we've been made for, you and I will continually need the filling of the Holy Spirit and the direction of the word of God. And we will need to choose to take to the stage when God calls us out onto it, allowing him to send us according to his purposes, taking our cues from the Lord, not from the culture, not from our own understanding, but from the Lord. We may be amateurs to the world, but with the Holy Spirit empowering us and with the Holy Spirit presenting us, we can become showstoppers who bring help to the hopeless and glory to our God. Amen?